0: I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I extend my respect to their elders past, present, and emerging, and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander listeners that we have joining us. Sovereignty has never been ceded. This always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land.
1: This is what happened to a called female genital mutilation. I'm a victim of it, and it's actually not okay. It's senseless. It is It is one of the most brutal forms of sexual violence and gender-based mis- violence and done to those who can protect themselves.
0: You will never meet anyone like Khadija Blah. She's a human rights activist, a model, a single mother, a disability advocate and keynote speaker. In 2014, her TED Talk, My Mother's Strange Definition of Empowerment, catapulted her into the public spotlight. Khadija was born in Sierra Leone and arrived in Australia as a refugee at the age of eight. Attending an all-white school, she navigated discrimination, racism and sexism and had the incredibly unique experience of remembering that as a child, she had been subject to female genital mutilation at the hands of her mother. Khadija has dedicated her life to giving women, youth and minority groups a voice at local, state and international levels. Her work involves advocacy and training on subjects such as domestic and family violence, gender equality and inclusion, mental health, cultural safety, sexual health, racism and human rights. What I find most impressive is that despite the seemingly insurmountable challenges Khadija has faced, she approaches life with unbounded confidence, fierce optimism and a very contagious laugh. Her courage in denouncing the practice of FGM in Australia and internationally, as well as her outspoken stance against domestic violence, has faced much family and community backlash. And yet, she continues to show up each day for the people around her. Strap yourself in, this is Khadijah Blah's story. This is Life Chats deep and meaningful conversations with friends and strangers. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Obviously, we've known each other for a few years. You are one of the most inspiring, amazing women I have ever met in my life, so I'm very grateful to speak to you. You grew up in Sierra Leone. What was that like?
1: Well, in a lot of ways, I feel like I didn't grow up in Sierra Leone. I was just born there. I was three when the war broke out. So if you took me to Sierra Leone right now and left me at the airport, I actually don't know where I'm going, to be honest with you. We will be exactly the same, lost and no direction. I was born there, and of course, my mom and dad are all Sierra Leonean. But the war broke out when I was three. I became a refugee at the age of three. I look at Sammy now when he was three. I can't imagine that kind of life where at the age of three, my mom just said, people want to kill us, and you need to spend more time under the bed and don't make any noise, because if you make any noise, they know you're here and they are either kill us or rape us because my mom had me and I'm three. My sister is one, was just born when the war broke out. My dad was killed during the war, and predominantly most of my family members were killed. And my mom had to, as a single mom, made a single mom have one child on her back, holding the hand of the other one trying to get out of Sierra Leone, trying to take us to safety. I don't think people can imagine what you must feel like at that formative years of your life to feel that sense of unsafety and that sense of threat. And like bombs are dropping everywhere. People have machetes, you know, they're chopping limbs left, right, and center. And you're just there trying to process this. I don't think I was even speaking enough to be able to put into words how scared I was and how scared my mom was in that kind of world. It was complete chaos and shambles. There was no sense. It was just a madness. And to then be displaced for about eight years, you don't understand that concept. You can get out of your own country to seek safety. So you're stuck in limbo looking for a way out. So you just go around in circles looking for a checkpoint. You can get out. But the aim was to lock you all in so news wouldn't get out of what was happening. And that took us eight Yes. So there wasn't a teddy bear. There wasn't, you know, nighttime stories. There wasn't cuddles. There was hiding. There was hearing people screaming. There was, will my only living caregiver die? Just insecurity across the board. I wouldn't wish that on anyone because I think that really set the scene for what my life will look like later, but also why I'm so passionate about wanting to change the world and make it better. So Does you that have sense? a few,
0: <laughs> totally, totally. You have a few memories of being in, I think you explained, like refugee camps or where, when you were displaced, being in all these different environments. Yes. Do you remember your mum explaining to you what the situation was or kind of explaining that your dad
1: had passed away or were you too young to remember that? I remember that because I have nightmares. Sometimes it's a smell or a sound even during the day that will trigger that. Like Christmas, for example, the fireworks and, you know, the party poppers, that sound can really feel like a bomb. It's very similar, the sound. And it also can sound like gunshots as well. So, all oh, food I eat can transport me completely back. And I remember, she didn't go into detail. She just said, people are trying to kill us and we needed to hide. And there wasn't a lot of parenting it was more survival. I, I, I was. I feel like most of my childhood was me being alone. And people don't understand that. That's why I say I'm socially and extrovert, but for all intensive purposes, I actually like to be alone because so much sensory output usually reminds me of something. It can be so subtle, and then I'm unsettled, and I don't even know why I'm unsettled or why something's making me feel the type of way. But I just remember the fact that my mom just knew I have to keep these girls quiet, I mean, she has a newborn baby. Don't forget there was a young child there. Keep quiet. We're not playing. We're not laughing. We are just hiding. Then when we got to the refugee camp, there, once again, is this insecurity and a single mom. Most of the women didn't have the resourceful or the protection. So once again, in this situation where you are the mercy of those around and being women and girls, as you know, rape and sexual slavery was right. So having to once again, Always be hypervigilant, un- alert. To this day, I am constantly hypervigilant, always ready, always watchful, just in case that came from that, that that, that, that was formed, that I have to be aware of my surroundings at all times. I need to make sure who's around, who is where, because at any given time, how do I protect myself? Because I've always needed to protect myself, always needed to anticipate danger. It's not the best start to life.
0: No. And I think a lot of people assume that once you're out of that environment and you're safe physically, life must be fine. But then you moved to South Australia. Give us a little bit of an insight as to what that was like.
1: Well, it took us three days to get to Australia. We went from Sierra Leone now Gambia, Gambia to Senegal, which is still in Africa. Then we went to France. We were there at the airport for at least, I think, 12 hours. I joked that I was in France and nobody's going to fucking tell me I was not in France. <laughs> I have been to Paris. Back off. I don't care if I was at the airport. I was there. I was on the land. I'm claiming it. But we were there for so long. And then our flight took us to Singapore, which is quite interesting in that you're there. And I remember us going to the bathroom. And this is that technology and stuff. And we tried to open the tab and do all of this and nothing is happening. Somebody comes beside us, slide their hand, and the water magically comes on. It's like, for fuck's sake. This is just a big match, isn't it? We got into the flight, got to Sydney. And then we landed in Adelaide on the 9th of June, 2001. And honestly, I think we could have kissed the floor when that plane landed, when we were at the airport, because it was like a sense of relief. My mom said, we're, this is going to be our home and we are going to be safe. She won't understand safety will be challenged in a different way, but she said we were going to be safe. And then we ended up in a little neighborhood in Torranceville, in Adelaide, in the western suburbs. Very diverse. It was cold. We come from a tropical weather. So we're like, for the first time in our lives, we require a blanket and winter clothes. So we just wore two jeans, three jackets. But we would go buy ice cream and be eating ice cream while we're cold. It was just a hoot. And then we went to the supermarket. We're like, everything is in packets. What the fuck do you do with all these packets of food? Then we found the Asian grocery and we're like, hallelujah. All the veggies there are similar to the food back home. So my mom was very happy she can now cook. Then one day, though, she the fire alarm went off. We don't have fire alarms in Africa. She was like, what is that sound? We all ran outside. And then she said, Khadija, you, you go in and check. I've always been the man in the house. Oh, fine. Good parenting. I'll just go find out what that sound is. Let's just hope it won't harm I me mean, anyway. Oh, mommy, it's just coming from there. You must have... I think it's a smoke thing. Oh, okay, then we can all come in. Thanks a lot, woman. And, you know, then we went out and about to the community and we realized that it was very culturally diverse, but there was a high Asian population. So not knowing geography, my mom thought, are we in that country? Maybe we're actually in the wrong country. And it had to be explained to her that Australia was in the Asian Pacific region. And it's actually a very multicultural country, but it was interesting in those early days, you know, you are... In this new environment, and it's so different culturally in every way. You don't know the rules, and you're just going along. And until you do something wrong, and then people do something wrong, and you, didn't, you were not aware it was wrong. And then the introduction of racism. You know, having experienced ageism and sexism is different. But this addition of racism, and I remember my mom saying, people think the color of our skin means we're less. And I said, but mommy, we didn't choose that, that. we can't control that. And she said, yes, we can't, but there are people who think that means we should be treated differently because people were calling me a black monkey to go back where I came from. I mean, I can't go back. I'm like, well, where am I gonna go? I don't actually have a home anymore. That's what it means to be a refugee. We can't go back. And that conversation was quite interesting and it'll be an ongoing one. And now I have had to have that conversation with my child And probably we'll draw on that later. But it was interesting, but most of all, what we felt in those early years was gratitude. Complete gratitude, because what a gift. It felt like we went from hell and we came to heaven. But heaven with a bit of twist and a bit of spice. Later on, we'll find out what that spice was. (laughs) Yes, we will definitely
0: get into that. Um, So you were, I think from my research and my memory, you were about 11 when you came to Adelaide. Is that correct? 13. I was actually 13. Okay. Yes. 13. So you were in uh, probably early high school. What were your dreams or when you came to Australia, what did you want to be? Did you have any kind of like vision of what the future of your
1: life was going to be like now that you were in Australia? Absolutely. I'm a woman of dreams. Every day I make new dreams. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to heal people. And I just always studied. you know, medicine is fascinating. But years later, I realized the healing I want to do cannot be done through medicine. That was not actually the platform. I think through high school, in my volunteering, I found another perspective and interest. And volunteering for me wasn't even this thing of, I'm going to go out and do this. It was literally of trauma. My home life was very not stable. My mom has PTSD. She has not processed that. So it wasn't very safe. We, we were actually abused right out. And volunteering was my escape. So I went into this world wanting to think outside of myself and my own experience. And I found a world that gave me a voice. All that brought out my voice, I should say. I had it. It was brought out. And in there, I found that my greatest gift is my voice. And it was my responsibility to use that voice very carefully and very intentionally to make a difference and slowly medicine faded away and instead this advocacy and this power of voice and this power of storytelling and vulnerability in recognizing in my stories, the stories of so many, if I speak up, I am put into words for those who can't speak and As we know, that created current Khadija, healing, but in a different way, not in an office in a white coat, but healing beyond the offices, beyond the hospital at a grand scale with a bigger audience, but in a way that was authentic to me.
0: So you just mentioned then you were volunteering and I think that was something that you got into throughout high school, but volunteering, a lot of your story and your advocacy work is around female genital mutilation, FGM, and it was through your volunteering, I think that you'd realised that this was something that you had actually gone through. Do you mind telling me what that moment was like or discovering, rediscovering that that was something you
1: had experienced? It's funny. When I experienced FGM, I actually totally blocked the memory. And we know that's very common for children who have experienced abuse. The brain will try to protect you because obviously you can't always process such big experiences. So the best way is to lock it away in a little vault away. But unfortunately for me, and volunteering for Women's Health Statewide, which is a women's health service. They work around sexual health, HIV, a very feminist oriented organization. I stumbled onto an FGM program. I didn't know what the term FGM, female genital mutilation, actually stood for, have no collection enough of me to connect. So I was volunteering, I like, was helping the manager stack up resources, went along with her on training sessions, and somehow that memory got unlock though, as these things can happen smell, a sound, a book, anything. I open up a path like that, had the different types of FGM in a picture form. I mean, highlighted the different types. And I remember looking at type one is just, you know, when the hood of the clitoris is cut up with. Type two is when the whole clitoris is cut off and sometimes sewn up. And somehow that type two stood out to me because obviously you have your genitalia. You assume everyone's genitalia is the same. Why would you not assume I'm like everyone else? I've had no reason to think I was different. But looking at that image, I realized mine was reflected in type two. My whole clitoris has been taken out and it looked like a light stitching was also done and the memories came flooding back. I remember my mom driving us and saying we're going on a little holiday. How can we go on a holiday with refugees? That doesn't even make sense. In my culture, you don't question your parents. And then we went to this remote village and this scary woman, she scared me because she looked very scary, came out and talked to my mom. I think they were negotiating and agreeing on what was going to happen. She went back into her hut and got a rusty knife and then came back. And The next thing I know, this sequence of events, my mom is holding me down and this old lady is soaring away at what I now know to be called my clitoris. At the time I didn't even have a language for that body part. That's what is so funny. And she did that. She kept on I scream and scream. And I begged my mom to make this woman stop. But the reality is my mom had paid her to do precisely what she was doing. And she wasn't going to be deterred. She wasn't going to stop. She kept soaring away and felt like I was there hours. It probably wasn't that long. I bled and screamed and it didn't stop. And then it was finished. We never talked about it. Then it was just go home, sit in a bathtub of death oil. If I sniff death oil anywhere, that memory gets triggered immediately. That's why I hate hospitals because they use them a lot. And I remember just feeling this resounding hurt that the person who should protect me didn't protect me. In fact, orchestrated this without any explanation. It didn't make sense. There was no process. It just got locked away until I saw that diagram and I went, oh my God, I am, why this program was created. This is at, what happened to I me. Mean, it's called female genital mutation. I'm a victim of it. And it's actually not okay. It's senseless. It is one of the most brutal form of sexual violence and gender-based violence and done to those who can protect themselves. And I've had to forgive myself that little Khadija couldn't protect herself. And so I say I now protect other little Khadija so they're not created because it's unacceptable. But that's what happened.
0: Thank you so much for sharing. I know that that's not easy to recount those details, so thank you. What was that like when you went home after realising? Did you confront your mum? I
1: did. I had to because I had so many questions. We never had a conversation, so it just seemed like we had to go back to that. I went home and I said to her, why did you do that to me? She said, what? I said, you know, cut me down there. It's called fibromyalgia mutilation, she goes, it's not female genital it's female circumcision. She said, no matter what it's called, mm. why? She said, I was being a good mom. It's what I had to do. In that cultural context, it was her responsibility to ensure that that was done so we will be classified as normal. That was the norm. To not do so is actually, you are not being a good mother. You don't want your daughters to be marriageable. You don't want them to be clean and pure. But a statement she says to that, she said, do you get itchy down there, Kavija? I go, no, why would I get itchy down there? It sounds like a UTI to me. Who the fuck can say UTI? <laughs> like, why will you get itchy down there? She said, well, you don't get itchy down there because I did this. I go, what do you mean? She said, for example, when you have a husband, if you don't have sex with him, you don't have to have sex with him because you will not have that desire. You will have control. It's why my TED Talk was called My Mother's Strange Definition of Empowerment. She actually believed she had empowered me. And that could not have been furthest from the truth. And I said to her, you did not empower me. You harmed me. I now have to live with the impact of this for the rest of my life. My periods were national news in my community. Everyone would go, Where's Khadija? Oh, she's at the hospital. She has a period again. Because my period, when just you have a heat pack and a bit of chocolate, I had to be admitted and given morphine drips. That's the level of pain I am under. I can't walk. I become a cripple. I will crawl to the bathroom because I couldn't actually walk. I couldn't go to school, go to uni, or do anything for a whole week. And then outside of that, I would just have shooting pain random times. So then, chronic pain became a diagnosis that I was constantly in pain. At uni, doing a double degree of law and international students, I would sit outside at the back of the lecture hall so I could run to the bathroom when I had the shooting pain. I changed my wardrobe to a borehole skirt with elastic band, wore flat shoes because. That was the fashion you wear to be comfortable when you're in that amount of pain. But I mean, that is no way to live. So I looked at my mom and I said, it ends with me. This will end with me. In this family, as much as wider, it will end with me. No girl, no female identifying member of our family and wider within my sphere of influence will experience this. That's what I said to her. And I have carried out that since then.
0: It's a very brave moment, I can imagine, because not only are you going against your mother, who's the head of the household, but also your culture and the way that you were raised. So was that something that you ever spoke about with your sister or anyone else in the community? Like when you were discovering all these challenges and the fact that your life was hindered at that point, was that something you spoke to anyone about or you went through that alone?
1: No, I didn't. I remember that I was working at Multicultural Youth SA as a youth support worker there, and I spoke to my the person who was supporting me there and said to them, I've had this memory. I, is it real? Can one make up a memory? Actually, I was questioning. And she said to me, Khadija, they are real. They, like They are a recollection of something that's happening. She advised me to speak to my therapist who I had been seeing to talk about the abuse at home and just racism and being bullied at school. And I introduced this. She didn't know what to say. She was not prepared for this conversation. I was the expert more than therapist was. it was like, what? What are you talking about? What do you mean? And then I went home because I spoke to my mom who shut it down. It's funny living with your perpetrator, who is also your mom and you're in the same house. It was an interesting dynamic. The most important conversation was with my little sister. I raised my sister like I was her mom. I was, she used to call me mom. She was my first baby if I had a baby. And I explained to her my memories and that this happened to both of us. And I would like to respect her privacy by leaving it there. But I had to support her in processing it. And the only thing she asked at the time was, how can I get it fixed? And I had no answer. But years later, I will create the Desert Flower Center. And that was the answer to what my sister needed. But for me, it wasn't a matter of how do I fix it. Fixing was at a global stage. I I had a bigger idea of fixing. It wasn't just at that individual level of fixing of myself. It was fixing to make it stop. I then started working with the program I volunteered for in a more upfront way because I now knew I had a lived experience and then used the knowledge there to arm myself with information to go to my community. And words went very fast that little 13-year-old Khadija has decided to stop a century-old practice that's been going on for generations and she was taking everyone on and their grandma and their grandpa better be on the watch out. Khadija is on the case and she is going to take action. And that was the message. I will take action. You better watch your bat because not on my fucking watch that was it
0: I love that about you that you just you will not quit you will not stop you will go after the change that you want to see in the world I'm like excited to talk about your incredible work but talk me through from that age you start sending ripples out into the community to you stepping on stage and doing a TED talk and your mother actually being in the audience I believe where does that journey go?
1: Well, you know, you can say words, but they have to be backed with action. <laughs> I wasn't going to do anything if I was sitting at home, watching yes. Netflix and chilling, I was actually to get the fuck out of my house and go do shit. <laughs> so I think for me, I would say you want to arm yourself <laughs> with information and you want to arm yourself with resources to back up what you want to do. So the most simplest action was education. Starting there, raising that awareness. I started talking to grandmothers and, you know, there's layers of generation, a grandmother, a mom, and a granddaughter. You sit there three generations down the line and you're having this conversation. Grandma is saying, I thought I was doing what needed to be done. The mom is saying, I wish you had not done that. The granddaughter is saying, I want no part of this. Why? We can't keep doing this. We must stop. And you're sitting with them on the floor and you're crying. Everyone is crying. It's a moment of healing. It's a moment of validation. And it's a moment of change. It's acknowledging the past and saying, though, when we know better, we can all do better. Then outside of that community, then you think, what about the wider Australian community who were not talking about FGM? That is the reality. This topic was seen as something that happens across the world. And I had to tell them, it was right here in our own backyard. We must all be vigilant in ensuring we're aware FGM is a form of child abuse. FGM is gender based violence. And we all have, have ownership of this. And I think people were surprised. Oh, I have a part to play. Of course we all have a part to play. From the child care worker who calls to me and says, I'm changing a nappy and I see something and I watch your TED talk, can you please clarify? I feel like FGM has taken place. A teacher who calls to me and says, I have a bunch of girls they say they're going on a holiday very suddenly, and they said there's going to be a special holiday. They're going to be a woman. I watch your TED Talk. I know what that means. What do I do? So DV workers who call and say, we're supporting mom. She keeps saying, they're going to cut my daughter. They're going to cut my daughter. And I say, you must do a risk assessment to ensure you include that their daughters would at risk of a form of family violence that you may not be aware of. Make sure you are intersectional. To so then being invited to do a TED talk and the first time going, I don't know what that's what that is about. Leave me alone. To so the second time, then going, what is it again? I, I tend to do that. I'm like, what? What's what's a TED talk? What Are you talking about what is this thing? I don't know. I can be my school I'm like, what? Are, they're like, oh, it's this thing that's happening and people talk about a topic and it goes viral. I'm like, oh, it just sounds like a keynote speech. Oh, okay, then I'll do it. And then being asked what topic, I'm like, well, that's easy. I want to have about female genital mutilation. And they said to me at the time, well, we need to have your speech. I go, what speech? The speech you're going to give. I'm like, I don't know what my speech is going to be until I say it. Can you write it down? I don't write my speeches. What do you mean you don't write it? I'm like, I don't write it. I'm going to speak from my heart. What needs to come will come. They're like, well, that is not the way we do TED Talks. I'm like, I don't know what to say to you. Okay, depending on what side of the bed I wake up, I don't know what flavor it's gonna take, depending on I don't know, my outfit. I mean, I don't I don't know. Okay, leave me out of it. But in the end, I said, okay, I'll pretend I'm in an audience and I will give you a version. But remember, it's not gonna be the version on the day. Keep telling them I don't know what I am going to say. But it was an interesting process to then go on stage and I was pregnant which itself was interesting. One of the side effects of, and consequences of FGM was being diagnosed with fertility. So to now be having this miracle baby, but taking to stage to talk about female generation and know that there was a positive answer, there was a positive news to be shared, even in the darkness, I think it was a beautiful moment. But what led to that was years that nobody saw of me toiling fighting battles within my community and the backlash. My family was threatened over and over. My mom was insistent on shutting me down. Even as I lived down, she wanted me shut down. It was not my place to speak about this. How dare I, this little girl, tell them what their culture was going to be? How dare I make them vulnerable to Australia and its racism? How dare I take to stages and train people to be aware. Then why the community, as I train doctors, nurses, midwives, anyone who is willing to learn, and then see the racism in which they wanted to tackle FGM and having to explain to them, child abuse is not unique to any one culture. It is across the board. All of us are guilty of it and guilty of not protecting the most vulnerable among us. There's no place for racism or Islamophobia or transphobia. It must be that we're intersectional and look at everyone and make sure every child, no matter their background, race, religion, gender, identity, sexuality, class, ability, are given the same bloody protection. It's as simple as that. So I took on everyone. The government, I broke two wedding rings or engagement rings because of the passion, banging tables and going, what about the little girls? What about them? Two engagement rings later, broken. That's the passion. So by the time I took to that TED, TED- Talk stage with my white African garment, which was meant to represent constructive criticism of a cultural practice, does not take away from my identity. I am a proud African person. There's no going right that. So I wore that in that homage, then the white was the purity. We are still pure. We don't need female genital to mutilation to be pure. We are pure beings regardless. The red was the blood, the red in my shoes and the lipstick was the blood Still, Everything is intentional with me. And then I stood to that stage. Actually, if I got to the stage, because I watched a few speeches and just before I went, I started getting a bit nervous. It was way bigger than I had thought in my head of what this whole thing was going to be. And I'm like, "Oh, this is very serious. Gee, okay, all right. And I thought, I started panicking a little bit and I remember saying to myself, remember you're just a vessel. It's not you who must understand what you need to say. What you need to say will be said. This is about the millions of girls who have experienced this. You are given voice to them. That's all it is. Stand there in your authentic truth, and the, what needs to be said will come out. And that's exactly what I did. With three different endings, it kept on ending. I started again. It's like a it shit finish. 18 minutes later, finally got off the stage, and there were lots of tears and there were lots of emotions. But I am proud that what took me 18 minutes has become. Well, three million view and counting later is one of the, my biggest legacies. It has gone to the world in a way I can't physically go to the world. I get calls and emails from all over the world. People who heard my call of action, people who have challenged this within their family, their communities, professionals who have went upskill so they can be part of the solution. I am proud of it. I am proud that I get to tell my child, his mom wakes up every day and she chooses to be part of the solution. That I said, the standard, they said, the standard you walk by is the standard you accept. And I live that. And I couldn't be more proud of the babies I have protected. The babies I don't get to meet, I just hear their names. But their names are enough to move me to action so they can have the life they deserve. It takes the whole your neighbour to to the next level, everyone is my neighbour in that regard and every child somehow becomes my responsibility and I take it very seriously. Thank you so much for
0: sharing. What do you think the general consensus in Australia is around FGM? Because obviously, as you explained, this has been a cultural thing or beyond culture. This has just been a practice that has been going on for generations and generations. But in Australia, there seems to be, as you said, no conversation around it. It's kind of swept under the carpet, and people believe that this is a problem that happens elsewhere, not in Australia. Why do you think that is?
1: You know, in that, the right? last twenty-three years since I've been in Australia, I've seen the shift, the themes, as the ebb and flow in this a- section, and it's predominantly domestic violence and then the child protection and the broader community. I know one of the my original goals was to make FGM a national conversation. And when I got involved, invited by Julia, when Julia Gillard was in government, and she held the first female genital mutilation summit in Canberra, and I was invited to go. And before I even went, they called me and said, We would love for you to speak. And this will be a meeting of adults, if that makes sense. I was at uni, but everyone going, I had graduated, they were doctors, they were I was the kid in they were thrown into the mix. I was the youngest. But I was the loudest. No, I had already cemented myself as the FGM expert, as somebody who was fighting this on grassroots level. When they invited me, I was honored. And when they said, we would love for you to speak, I knew, and this will be an event before the TED Talk as well. This is before the TED Talk. I knew this was my moment to set the scene on what FGM looked like in Australia. My fear, and I said to them on that day, in the beginning of this summit, Julia spoken, Tanya, Plisik had spoken, and they said, Khadidji can speak. I said to them, FGM has always happened in Australia. It wasn't brought alone to Australia. It actually was already present through what is called clitonomy and labiaplasty. It was here. Then we also, migrant community brought as part of their culture into the mix. That's something to acknowledge because people tend to a pedal and it's part of the racism or it's the migrants who must be the refugees. No. All over the world, FGM is practiced in every continent except Antarctica. The fucking penguins are feminists. Okay? The fucking penguins. Okay? We love the penguins. Humans are the worst. The penguins are the best. Fuck off, everyone. Anyway, So, <laughs> there's no room for racism. <laughs> there is no room for racism. Then the Islamophobia conversation kicks in. This is not a Muslim problem. FGM is practiced across all cultures, all religions, and all creeds. It doesn't matter. Let's remove that. But the language also that was being used around is it female circumcision, it's a female genital mutilation. Language matters. I have to remind these adults in that room that at the end of the day, it's only survivors who get to say what language they prefer, not anyone else. But in terms of context, if I'm within a community, I will use the language they use as a way of bonding and respecting them. And then we'll have a common understanding to have a conversation. If I'm in a political or educational setting, we must use the actual proper terminology of FGM because it is the only name or language that truly reflects what took place and takes place for those of us who are impacted. It's not circumcision. You could not say what is taking place in circumcision. That's misleading. It's not female cutting. A cut can be unique. We are talking about brutally chopping off a healthy flesh on little children or young women or people identify or who have clitoris. And how do we just minimize that through language? So context matter. And then the most important thing was this was not about a bunch of adults. We must remember who the victims are. Voiceless, vulnerable children, babies who cannot protect themselves. We must ensure we're vigilant that we do our part to protect them. So that was interesting. And it set the scene for the summit. It all went back to that conversation. What Khadija said, is set a scene. And I forgot what the question was.
0: You are a queen. No, um, you actually answered about four of my questions in one. So thank you. But I was going to say, (laughs) I was going to say thank you for clarifying the language because, you know, in my research, I was reading a New York Times article. They were saying it's female genital cutting. And I know that, as you just said, we can't classify this as circumcision because what you've explained to me before is like there's actually a benefit of circumcision and especially in in certain cultures, um, it's beneficial for health reasons in some parts of the world. But female circumcision, if that's what we want to call it, there is no benefits to this whatsoever. There's not a single health benefit. And as we'll talk about later on, you've
1: had a lot of difficulty with your health. So when I came back from Canberra, because, of course, I can't just go to Canberra and come back from Canberra. I went to Canberra, I conquered Canberra, I made my, my splash. I was on the newspaper. I think, what was it called? Mother betrays Daughter. Uh, I think that's what the title was. It was big. And you know, the media like wow. to sensationalize. So the, we do the interview and that they choose the title. And there it was Mother betrays Daughter to Culture. And then, oh, oh my God. Great. Thanks a lot. So came home and said to my mom, can we have a conversation? Mm. I went, I did a bit of talking, (coughs) and this happened. She's like, ooh. But in our conversation, she said to me, Khadija, it's not like I'm happy at what happened to me. This will be our first conversation. She acknowledges herself as a victim and we're sitting one victim to a victim, except she's not ordinary victim. She's a perpetrator as well. So in that conversation, she said, I don't like what happened to me either. And it was not what I wanted. I said, but you did, you then continue that legacy and on to me. And that is not okay. And it's not right. And I consulted and said, when I do the work I do, it's not actually about you. And I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to shame you. And I'm not trying to harm you. I just want to use our story as an example to make a difference, to make a change. It's not just about you or me at the end of the day. How can I allow this experience to happen and do nothing? In my favorite quote is All it takes for evil to prevail is good people doing nothing. And I couldn't see, even at that tender age, how I could sit back and do nothing. And I imagine I said to her, She's a nurse, what we could do together if we came together to fight this. But that's not what she wanted. She wanted it back in the box and covered up nice and neat so she didn't have to feel guilty. It was not about anything else. She just didn't want to feel guilty. But I was not there to protect that. There was more at stake that needed protecting. And her guilt was not one of it. It will be the only moment we have that. Then we went back to our sides of the corner. I was going to fight the fight. She was going to try to shut it down. But guess who won that battle? One of us did,
0: and that's it. Hi, everyone. A quick reminder that if you are loving this chat, I would be so grateful if you could take two minutes now to jump on whatever platform you're listening to this and leave a review or share the episode you're currently listening to on social media. I'd love to see where you're listening from if you're going for a walk, if you're at the gym on the treadmill, if you're driving. Obviously, don't take a photo if you're driving. <laughs> But it is so incredible to see that we now have listeners from over 35 countries tuning in. And the more that we grow, the bigger guests I can bring you. I am so, so grateful that you're here on this journey with me. And I'm excited about the live chats that we have coming up with some absolutely inspiring guests. Thank you so much. I will get to your incredible work with the Desert Flower Center. But whilst all this is going on, let's not forget, like you are a human, you have had relationships, you fell pregnant, like let's talk about, what was that life for you like? I believe you're <laughs> married, divorced. Do you want to go into any of that? Your experience just I love it. What my, general life, life. my life
1: is like me. It's icy, it, it's complex it's itself, it's AHD, it's all over the place, it makes sense. Where do you even begin? I think in some ways I need to reintroduce myself. There's like a lot of coming out for Khadija. I think by virtue of my work, I give a lot away, but also I actually keep a lot in the vault. I talk, what what you will learn about me is I talk when I feel the need to and then I just, then I I am not talking anymore. That's me. (laughs) I don't identify as a female, First of all, shock at a lot of people who be like, what? Now, if she did them, it's Mm non-binary chance? Yeah, let it go. It's all good. And also, I guess I have been coming out disabled in an interesting way. Most people will know this about me, but, In my early years in Australia, I was immediately diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which is a a chronic pain condition where continuously I'm always in pain. My brain translates and sees everything around me as a threat. So it sends pain signals to protect me, but in actual reality, it holds me hostage. So something as simple as the aircon I put on to cool down my skin will feel pain because my brain thinks that that's unsafe. Uh, I can't uh, regulate temperature. So in the winter, I actually have the aircon on. Everyone is cold. I am actually hot completely. And when you start saying this, people are going to go, oh, that makes sense. I have mobility issues. My legs work or they don't work. I can stand. I can't stand. My hands are there, but they're not there. And then recently I got diagnosed with ADHD and autism. The ADHD wouldn't surprise anyone who's fucking met me. I could, you know, I'm a ball of energy. People have said my whole life, <laughs> I want to bottle you up and have some of that. Well, you can bottle up some ADHD and take it if you want. That is exactly what I have. That was my sixty <laughs> spice and sauce. We can now fucking name it and I'll give it to all. You can all have it. ADHD for you. I'm the opera ADHD for you, ADHD for you. Then once the ADHD sort of calmed down it with a bit of meditation, but you can tell, how do you even calm the fuck Khadija down? Who the fuck calms me down? Certainly not anyway. But when a little calming down had taken place, the autism was like, what about me? Do you see us? Does she see us? I don't know who sees us. That's that TikTok sound. I talk TikTok sound sometimes. But the autism was very interesting in that, you know, my child <laughs> okay. was diagnosed with ADHD and autism. And in doing so, I remember thinking, he's so much like me. And I thought, if is like me, am I like Sammy? That's a whole chapter in the book. Is Sammy like me? Am I like Sammy? And I went down the rabbit hole and came back out and thought, yes, I am like Sammy. We're exactly the same. And I think in the general conversations we're having around autism, I know Grace Tame is autistic and a few other people. Emma has come out autistic, that media personality person. A lot of people are having late diagnoses. I mean, I'm 34, so I think I'm classified as a late diagnosis. I think it's a beautiful conversation around you know how we go our whole lives and we struggle or we have these quirks or ways that we present and people misunderstand, but really later on you learn that there is a reason for it and that there's actually you, you were not being flaky when you just forgot things or that you were hyperactive or or that you like things in a very specific way. It has been validating to know the why. For me, that just knowing, oh, that's just how my brain is wired, that makes sense. It's validating for me. And I can't wait to talk to that community and go, hey, I'm here. Hello, everyone. You just ate it. the Europe Divergent Life. Hello. <laughs> that's a hello. That would be it. Right, because I have to make my presence known. But I think also concept like thinking and reflecting on the idea of disability. And what that means to me versus what it means to other people. As I raise a child who is classified, as disa- who is disabled, and how I approach that has been a strength based approach, he's perfect to me. My job and role is to meet his needs and understand those needs and fight as hell to make the world a place where he thrives and be his best self like any other kid. But in parenting him, I've been repainting a part of me that wasn't allowed to be disabled. Because I didn't get what Sammy gets. My mom said to me flat out, you're black, you're a woman, you're a girl person. She thought, guess it means gender I means. She never bothered to ask me how I identify, but never mind. She thought, disability-wise, most of your disabilities are invisible. Nobody will know. We can just hide it. So I went through my whole life being able-bodied. I think last we spoke, I did say I disabled. I think I mentioned medical conditions, but had not used that language. But I am. My child is. I'm a carer, and I myself am disabled. And I don't say that. For me, it has positive reinforcement. I am not less than anyone else. It is I who determine what that means, not anyone else at the end of the day. So it's been an interesting journey from the neurotypical side coming out, I guess, the gender diverse side and identifying as trans non-binary, then the sexual side and going, well, I'm a pansexual, but I'm a demisexual, asexual, sitting in that category and then being verbal and non-verbal. A lot of people will probably be shocked by that and go, your voice is your most powerful tool. It's like, yes, it is. But imagine if that's taken away from you. Imagine you don't have control over that. And recently I had an experience where I was admitted at the emergency and in what was a state of trauma, I actually went non-verbal. And how I felt in that moment was so disempowering to not be able to speak and say what my needs were and express what was happening with my body and being at the mercy of others to speak for me was very traumatizing. And it gave me a new appreciation for those who sit on the non side of the spectrum and who might go longer periods and not be able to speak and how even further vulnerable they are and how important it will be to ensure we advocate and we make things better so that they are protected and safe. But a lot of people will think, well, that's huge. This woman has a voice and her voice is her thing to then be a state where that voice doesn't happen. And I can't control that in any way. It was a very surreal experience. Oh, and I'm a wheelchair user as well. I think that would be a shocker, but I'm a wheelchair Again. user. That's an interesting one. How, yeah, anyway. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, you have been advocating for yourself and the child, like the whole way through, even throughout the pregnancy. Like I remember you explaining yes. to me that no one has any sort of yes. knowledge in Australia, or at least the people that you spent time with had no knowledge or education on how to coach you through that birth experience because they had never assisted someone like you. So the whole way through eight, from you being pregnant eight. to now He's 17, eight. I don't know, five yeah. or six years old. Eight, oh my goodness. You've advocated the whole way through. Um, I'm interested to hear, how do you think your experiences...
1: It's a very interesting because I think in a lot of ways... You know, when you have a child, that's for everyone. It makes you reflect your own experiences with your mom. That, that's just what it is. The two relationships are parallel. When I found that I was pregnant, first of all, I didn't believe I was pregnant. I made my doctor do every test until he said, if you ask me to do one bloody test further, like, that would be the end of it. He was over me and my test. I just was so shocked. I'm like, it's not true. He's like, not <laughs> one more <laughs> test. Can you tell you're pregnant? That's the end of it. i like, okay, fine. Jesus Christ, calm down. do have to be so pity about it. So that was my pregnancy. I was told I had high-risk pregnancy because of the FGM. So that created anxiety. How do I maintain this pregnancy? Can I bring this pregnancy to turn? It was a very anxious process. And then reaching in the medical system, relaxing, they had no clue what to do with it. I remember going to my first antenatal appointment and they're asking me about my family history around diabetes, cholesterol. And I said, look, I'm African. Who knows why the fuck my people are dying? Stop asking me questions. I don't know. I don't know why they're dying. Who knows? All I know is, in essence, the history taking starts with me, my generation. You can't go any further. There's no information there. So I then said at the end, are you going to ask me about female genital mutilation?" The nurse said, oh did that happen to you? I'm like, yes, it happened to me and it matters. Okay, what type? I said, that was part two. She documented it and she said, well, you will need to see a doctor because we need to ensure, you know, we factor that in. I said, okay, came for the next appointment. Saw the doctor, how's the pregnancy going on? I said, i have nauseous all the time, but so far so good. And I said, are we going to talk about FGF? What do you mean? I'm like, well, it would impact my birthing plan. No, it'll be fine. No, it will impact my birth. Man, oh no, you'll be fine. When we get to the operating room, we we'll sort it out. Sort it out at the operating room. I can't push to, down there due to the lack of elasticity and the trauma. You can't wait to go work it out. I left and I was so upset. And at the time I worked at Shine SA, which is a sexual health, our state sexual health agency in South Australia. And I said to my teammates, my experience, and they said, you need to get a midwife group. You don't want a doctor. You should have a midwife group. They will might handle this better. I went back and I made a group, and they said, you're actually right. You don't have the elasticity to stretch to have the baby that way. It is why most countries where there's a high rate of FGM also have high maternal mobility rates as a result. But I was lucky and privileged to be in Australia where I can have a planned cesarean because it was the safest thing for me and my baby. And that is a beautiful thing. The little diamond digger, who is now a gold digger, or oh, his special interest is mining diamond and gold. So my little gold digger that I lived with decided to come two weeks early. And of course, he was always in a rush. But over a weekend period, where from a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, for three days, I apparently was in labor unbeknownst to me. He was going around doing life coaching, a vision board, nesting, having that level of pain come Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday around 8 p.m. I was like, fuck this and fuck that one. Who the fuck wants to have sex ever again? I called the hotline and they said, man, you have been in labor since Friday. The baby's coming get your husband to get a towel. I'm like, no, <sighs> we're not doing that. They go, well, I'm going to have this baby at home. There is no time, ma'am. I'm like, there will be time. I called the ambulance. They came. They said, ma'am, you're in labor. You have been in labor. I'm like, take me to the damn hospital. You didn't ask your opinion. So they took me to the ho- hospital. On the 2nd of the 2nd, 2015, my little gold digger came out. And here we are. And he went to a mine. Gold and diamond. And I get to say, I live with a gold digger, finally. Thank you. Here we are. But in being here, I love mothering. I love... (laughs) In Sami, I get to reparent myself and give little Khadija what she didn't receive. But in Sami, uh, my values and the hopes and dreams I have of a world where... All children get to thrive and be their best self no matter what. And in painting a child who's disabled and you divergent and, and non binary himself, he has identified that. He said he's 80% boy, 20% girl. I think the autism required a percentage for him. I haven't done a percentage on my gender identity. My autism doesn't think it's necessary, but I acknowledge his percentageness of it all. And he says, never mind. He walks up to me and says, you're making too much noise, mommy. Keep it down and walks away. And I said to him, can you knock at the door like somebody who doesn't pay bills? Because what does that sound like? You knock like you don't pay bills quietly because you don't pay bills. And then, of course, the fact that he (laughs) has all these ideas. He said to me one day, mommy, I have an idea. I go, what? We need to have a business together. Okay. How much money do you have? I thought. I guess I'm the one investing. Um, well, let's leave how much money I have. What's the idea? I wanna have a smoothie and ice block business, and then you need to double the money. That sounds like he wants to mine diamonds, he wants to be an entrepreneur and he wants investment, and he's eight. I am fucking exhausted already. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Look, I can do some babysitting for you for sure. What sort of future do you imagine for yourself and for Sammy?
1: To do the things that give us joy. That's it. All I want for Sammy is if he's happy, that's it. I don't have dreams of him overachieving, being something. That doesn't matter to me. I just want him to be happy. If he's happy, then I'm happy. For myself, I think I want a life that gives me joy and a life that Every single day, in its own simplicity, I eat, I have a nap, I watch reality show and go, you go girl, she's fucking lying, we know she spread that fucking rumor, she's not your friend, and then spend time with people I like, and eat a lot of food, and maybe like somebody, but who gives me enough space, so I like them in a little window, and then I'm like, fuck off, I need to be by myself, it's just too much, that's all I want, it's simple things. Simple life. But in all of that, happiness, it seems a little, but we all deserve to have happiness. And that's all I want. But
0: yeah. Before we go, just quickly tell me about the Desert Flower Center, how people can find out more about that or follow along and just how that came about, because I think it's yes. so incredible. And there's not, there's really nothing
1: else like it. In her asking me that question, when I said to her, Mommy, did this to us, and this is the name. And canceling her through that. I had to put, actually, in a way, a lot of my processing to cancel her because she was the younger one. I needed to care for her as I brought this news to her. And her question said, how do we fix it? I think she planted a seed on a subconscious level. I never thought of it until recently. But as I continued and trotted along in my work, the education, the training, the advocacy, a little side of me knew we were missing something. What we were missing is that I'm doing protection, protection. but what about the woman? What about the adult version? The sexual health issues, the mental health issues, infertility issues, where does she go? Where do they go? Where do they get their support? And that is what led to the Desert Flower Center. When I heard that the Desert Flower existed in Europe and they were creating one in Africa, I thought, why should an Australian woman had to go all the way across the world to go get trauma-informed treatment or support to reduce her pain, to support her mental health, to increase her likelihood of fertility if that's what she wants or they want, whatever gender adventure they may have, why should they have to have distance and cost be a barrier? So then I had to seek and search for a team I was doing a training around FGM and they said to me, and I shared this vision and I said, I need a team. I need a surgeon, a gynecologist, I need a psychologist. They said, we know a doctor who potentially, they are a gynecologist. They actually see people who are impacted by FGM, but they don't advertise that. I followed up and I met them and I shared my vision. Then I met a psychologist, I shared my vision. And what we now know to be the Desert Flower Center was born. I have to say that we have a lot of people, a lot of gender diverse people, trans people, and a lot of women who were not impacted by FGM, but they had labiaplasty go wrong, who come and receive treatment. And my value has always been intersectional for that reason, that it should not matter. We should never discriminate or box in our work. We should always leave it open to new people, to difference that may pop up and require services. Our door is open to all. FGM is not the only thing that impacts people. I mean, there's sexual dysfunction that may stem from sexual assault and other things. Why should we not provide care? I have stepped away from the disafflux because I've done what I needed to do. It's set up. Where my attention is needed, it's in the education and the advocacy and the political space to broaden that. And in some ways, maybe start writing that book, my memoir, as much as the FGM book in an Australian context, talking about child protection, racism, intersectionality, intersect people. Where do they sit in this conversation? How do we have a guide and a plan moving forward? I guess a manifest of some sort. It's now the time to start writing that legacy so there's something behind. Life is fragile. In this last couple of months, I have seen the fragility of life. I mean, I will get that because I was a child where bombs were dropping. But then I was in Australia, experiencing DV where my life was almost taken. But recently... Like I said, with medical conditioning issues, I found myself in a state of non-verbal, but also not being responsive and having to get my face in order. So there's this little element of life is fragile. I only have today, guaranteed. Where your body in seconds to second, you can walk, not walk, talk, not talk, move, not move. A lot has changed. The now, second to second matter. I want to do what I need to do now. Because tomorrow, it's not guaranteed. Five years, it's not guaranteed. My body has told me what I thought was five years away has come closer. I need to be prepared. So I need to get what I need to put out, that legacy, what I want to leave behind. Not to be morbid in any way, but it's just an urgency to do now. I think that's where my attention needs to be as much as also the home front to have more quiet time with me and my baby and have that calm, Peace and gentleness, we both deserve because so much is out of, outside of our control. So in a way, I want to control what I can and I want peace, peace. I want peace in everything I do. I want that sense of peace. I've gone from urgency, Didja bang, bang, bang ADHD toe? Slow, baby girl, slow, 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 slow. That's me. <laughs>
0: kind of wrapping up here, do you think that FGM is a practice that will ever cease to exist? And if that is the goal for you, if you could click your fingers and have every resource and every support that you would need to make that happen.
1: Change is within their own fingertips. Stop looking to other people to be the change. You are the change. We are the change. Every one of us, every day have opportunities to make change with influence in your family around the dinner table, the conversations you have about equality, gender, sexuality. These things are what feed, what ends up becoming these extreme forms of violence. They don't start that way. They start with the way we raise boys and girls and the gender element. They start in the way we think of bodies. Your child comes out gender ambiguous. You start chopping bits to determine what gender they will be. Instead of waiting for them to determine that We call little girls sassy, but boys are leaders. We say, oh, Tom hits you, he must like you. No, he doesn't. Love, is doesn't hurt. The gender roles, what dad and mom or your gender diverse person, who does what in the home? People want me to tell them to march to the streets. No, start in your home, how you raise, how you divide the labor in your workplace, be inclusive you have equality at the center human rights at the center at your sports club at the pub the jokes you laugh to with your mate oh a woman can lead they're very uh, well they're very emotional well look at how women have led nations through covid they did well they're, those nations did better men are for war not that bullshit gender diversity but like peace for all it's the little things that the, they are the foundations But we have to go back to where the root cause of this act. FGM was not manifested up in the cloud. It's a result of gender inequality. So we must address that gender inequality to then end a world where FGM will not be present. A world where we know Men, boys, girls, gender diverse people, trans people are allowed to thrive and be their authentic self where they can be safe and given equality, access to opportunities. FGM can't exist. Domestic violence won't exist. There'll be equal pay. There'll be equality. It starts in the little a blue and a pink, a doll and a truck, sassy, a leader. It starts. Very little. Dad makes the barbecue, mom makes the salad. Or what if a world, we imagine a world, that stays at home and is happy to stay at home. Mom wants to work, she works. Well, a world where dad makes a salad, mom is like, I can't fucking cook. Can't where I have a friend who says, my house husband is at home. He cooks, he cleans. Wonderful. I love that for you. A life where people live in separate homes and they're still in a relationship. Oh, hello. People, it doesn't matter. You know, when Samuel was literal, giving me a pink jumpsuit. Oh, that's a cute girl. It's a boy. Why is he wearing pink? it's a fucking color. It's a fucking color. That's a fuck it is. Karen, there you go. But that is what I envisage, Karen. What is it to you with a pink? Karen, Karen, women wear pink. Go complain to somebody else about that. But I don't think it's so complex. Every one of us <laughs> as individuals, are the answer and the solution to the the challenges our world, our community, our families are facing. We tend to look outside. We are all courageous. My challenge is take the opportunities available to you within your sphere of influence, play your part, show up. It is small. It's not the government who are gonna do this shit. It's us, we the people, we do that. And I think in doing that, let's also be gentle and kind that we may not always have all the information or the language. We may stumble and be clumsy. Let's hold space for people to learn and grow rather than attack and cut down because they're not there yet. It's a journey. What is it? Little steps, but surely we will get there. And I do believe there's a world where FGM will not exist because we now live in a world where foot binding doesn't exist. So there is an example of how change is possible.
0: You are one of the most amazing people I have met. Just your passion, your generosity with your knowledge and your time and your vulnerability and honesty in sharing your story. I can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing and the way that you're changing the world in your own way and inspiring people like me to try and do the same we have one final question before we go. This is the closing tradition on this podcast. You can answer in as many or as little words as you like, but everyone gets the same question. And Khadija that question is,
1: what is the meaning, meaning of life? Meaning of life. Gee, that is a deep question. The meaning of life is love, <laughs> La- uh, laugh, <laughs> fuck shit up. That's it.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on that note, we will wrap up. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Please let me know who you'd love to hear from next or if you have a story to share, I'd love to get in touch with you. You can connect directly with me on Instagram at Life Chats Podcast, one word. And every review and share really does help so much in the early days of building a podcast. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it on social media or you can snap a pic of where you might be listening and jump onto Apple Podcasts and give us a review. I really do appreciate the support more than you know. Have a beautiful morning, afternoon or evening wherever you may be listening in the world. I'm Georgia May and this is Life Chats.